Campbell, and welcome back to the Food Institute podcast. We have a great panel for this week's episode, and we'll be taking a look at trending cybersecurity issues ranging from common threat vectors to best practices to insurance protection. But before we get started, I would like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, and that's Hub International. Headquartered in Chicago, Illinois, Hub International Limited is a leading full-service global insurance broker and financial services firm providing risk management, insurance, employee benefits, retirement, and wealth management products and services. With more than 15,000 employees and offices located throughout North America, Hub's vast network of specialists brings clarity to a changing world with tailored solutions and unrelenting advocacy, so clients are ready for tomorrow. For more information, please visit www.hubinternational.com. And with that said, I think we can go around the room to introduce ourselves, starting with you, DJ. Hi, my name is DJ Schalk. I'm one of the directors uh, with Arite Incident Response. Uh, my specific role is around technical incident response. So I actually have two teams, uh, the technical leads that engage with customers when uh, they experience a, a ransomware or a network intrusion incident. Um, and then we also have a team of technical individuals. Uh, we consider them our client tech ops team. They're uh, essentially on-site engineers that help troubleshoot and rebuild uh, environments. Uh, I come from a, a background in IT. I've been in IT for a little over 19 years. And the last 11 I've spent doing incident response with starting with uh, Hewlett Packard uh, I also worked for a few years with Accenture uh, doing incident response. Hi, my name is Brian Schnazy. Uh, I am a senior risk consultant with Hub International. I work within their risk services division on cybersecurity risk management. Uh, by way of professional background, I'm a former FBI special agent. I also spent almost a decade working at a big box uh, uh, Fortune 50 retailer uh, in, in theft and fraud risk management. I'm Summer Kennedy, a senior vice president with Hub International. Hub is the largest privately held insurance brokerage in the world and started in 1998. As a designated agribusiness and farm specialist, I work on a team that curates risk management solutions specifically for food and beverage manufacturers, distributors, and retailers. I've been at Hub for 14 years and in the insurance industry for 19 years. And my primary goal is to help clients protect what matters most. All right, perfect. So I know we have a lot of ground to cover today. And I think what we could do to start this conversation is just kind of set the table a little bit and talk about cybersecurity from a top level view. And I'd like to turn to Brian here to start. And I'm just wondering, you know, from your perspective, from that top level view, what are the major threats that a robust cybersecurity program is aiming to protect against these days? Well, thank you, Chris. Of course, like other industries, um, cyber poses very serious threats to privacy and to reputation and, and, and also an organization's strategy. But I think the food industry has unique vulnerabilities. Uh, we've seen this increased reliance on, you know, automation. There have been great advances in technology. But with those, we've created, well, new operational exposures. We rely heavily on those things today. And so, you know, a cyber attack can also lead to, as an example, uh, a contamination event or uh, malfunctions, false readings on equipment. I mean, uh, a disruption to operations in your organization um, might lead to a cyber claim that also ties into a product recall event. Uh, in addition to that, in the wake of the pandemic, 
we've got employees working from all over. So that is also, you know, vastly changed the threat landscape in this industry, um, making it something that needs to be managed. I, I also think the food industry has, you know, very u- unique supply chain vulnerabilities, right? We've, um, we've got a plethora of third-party solution providers that if, uh, if disrupted due to a breach or a data security incident, is, it's going to affect our operations. It's going to affect our profitability and expose us as well. Um, just a few off the top of my head. And I appreciate you sharing that, Brian. I think something that might help our audience kind of hone in on this is maybe taking a look at some food industry specific attacks in recent history that can kind of illustrate, you know, the threat that some of these cyber attacks can really pose. Oh, sure. Well, look, okay, a well known snack company um, hit with malware not too long ago, ended up being crippled to the tune of, I think, 100 million in, in business interruption costs alone. So Okay, despite their best efforts, they've lost the ability to ship an invoice. And this happened at an interesting time at the end of the quarter and and near a holiday. So this organization was in the position of having to tell investors that they they basically permanently lost revenue due to uh, delayed shipments and timing issues uh, related to the shipping of some of their product. Uh, Another... Another example of a well-known meat processor was hit with ransomware. Uh, again, there's a difference between malware and ransomware, right? But this particular attack had forced, I think, a fifth of our nation's meat processing capacity offline and, and for several days. Uh, some within the organization were talking about how they were disrupted. And it was interesting to hear that uh, they were unable to complete even basic tasks like weighing poultry or sharpening knives or just clocking in their employees. Uh, if I remember, I think they ended up paying also um, about a $14 million ransom demand. Uh, I guess one, one more example, Chris, would be that uh, a well-known candy company, uh, they had some access control issues or a vulnerability they were unaware of, and they had basically accidentally made public for a short amount of time um, some sensitive files. And, and during that very short amount of time, a hacking group that was funded by uh, a foreign nation state had taken full advantage. They ended up extracting something like 10 gigabytes of data. And then there came the, the extortion. Uh, they had threatened to release all of that to the public if this company didn't stop their operations in a, in a specific country. So just a few examples there of what that's actually looking and feeling like within this industry. Yeah, and that's kind of one of the things I learned doing my research for this uh, episode, you know, talking with all of you ahead of time. It's how complicated and sophisticated some of these attacks are, the threat vectors. And I think, you know, the average layperson doesn't really, you know, understand, I think, how complicated all of this is. And that complication can really lead into really high costs. So I was ho- hoping, Brian, maybe you could share a little bit about what the cost of a modern data breach is. Sure. Uh, lots of industry insights and claims data um, to, uh, to digest in this space, but it's an upward trend in the last five to seven years. And this year, I'm sorry, well, last year, the average total cost of a breach in the United States was something around $9 million. That includes a lot of large organizations. Um, We, the United States, are number one 
and not in a good way in, in this space. I think the global average cost was something more like $4 million. But when we say the total cost of a breach, you know, we're, we're talking about a few things. You've got the actual ransom demand itself. And industry insights and reports suggest that large companies are, are paying, on average, about an $8 million ransom demand. Smaller and medium-sized organizations, uh, maybe in the size of $80 million in revenue, would be paying more like a $250,000 ransom demand. But of course, there are other factors in that. Um, and the, the, the demand itself is just, again, one part of the total cost. You've also got uh, the increasing cost of responding to that breach and employing and leveraging response vendor service providers like your investigative forensics team and your legal team or your you know, outside privacy attorney. Um, costs for notif notifying those who have been impacted um, and monitoring. On average, we're seeing large companies spend around $2 million for breach response services. Smaller, medium-sized organizations can pay around $150,000. So I guess that really kind of showcases the fact that this is not just a drop in the bucket. You know, these can be major ransom demands and also just response costs can also be, you know, pretty prohibited for a company trying to continue operations. Um, and I think that's a really good spot for us to kind of talk to now one of the people that actually talks with these people uh, when they get a ransom demand. So I'd like to turn to DJ for a couple of questions here. Um, I'm wondering if you could tell us, you know, what are the most common threat vectors and attack surfaces that you are seeing being targeted today when it comes to these ransomware demands, malware, and just in general, what kind of threat vectors are you seeing in your work today? Sure, Chris, there, there's really a, a, a few different ways that we can look at uh, the threat landscape when it comes, especially to ransomware, um, but also network intrusions. Um, the the main landscape that we really see being attacked, uh, and it's more so by happenstance, is your perimeter devices or your edge devices, which would be your your firewalls, your VPNs. Um, you know, any any way to come into the environment from uh, an outside source. Um, and the, there's quite a few different devices because you have, uh, you know, like I said, you have your your firewalls and your VPNs, but also your internet-facing uh, servers. So you know, you might have a web server or a remote access server if you uh, have something in the environment like uh, a VDI. So VMware Horizon is considered a VDI, which a VDI is a virtual desktop infrastructure. Um, and you know a lot of times too we see exploits uh that you know we we consider zero days and what a zero day is is it's a it's a a newly identified vulnerability in a device or a software application that doesn't have a patch yet um so it's it's really important for the vendors of these devices and software applications to develop a patch and get that pushed out um and we do see a lot of threat actors uh, utilizing zero days uh, to get into the environment, you know, it's an easy way for them to to target specific companies if they know that they have uh, these technologies in place. Um, if there is a patch for it, obviously it's no longer considered a zero day, but we do see a lot of those affecting our customers. 
Um, some examples of the zero days would be the Microsoft Exchange Hafnium exploit, um, the Kaseya exploits. Um, there was one other one too that we saw recently with Log4j, which affected a lot of different devices and applications. Uh, since it's just a, a portion of the technology that's used. So it's really important for uh, customers to, to stay on top of, of these updates that are coming out, um, you know, being in contact with their vendors. A couple of the other landscapes that we do see uh, being attacked are especially with phishing emails um, and even threat actors going to the dark web and purchasing username and password data sets from previous breaches, uh, conducting port scans, stuff like that. Um, and I, I, I kind of categorize these as, you know, uh, in, in three different categories, really, you have your, your edge devices that a threat actor can, can exploit. Um, and then, as I said, you have your phishing campaigns and uh, data sets that they purchase. But then there's also, which is a smaller uh, threat landscape, it's really, it's not a threat actor landscape that they would use, but we also have accidental compromises and internal threats that we need to think about when when we are securing environments and, and working with customers to, to harden their environments. And I think one of the interesting things we could talk about, DJ, is whether or not you should pay a ransom when ransomware is put on your system. Um, I think that this is a really interesting point because when you first brought up some of the things that you told me on these pre-calls, I was kind of flabbergasted, to be completely honest. Um, so I'm wondering if we could talk a little bit about, you know, some of the considerations that would go in when a ransomware, um, you know, attack basically forces your company to make a decision on whether to pay a ransom or not. Could you talk about some of the things that surround that kind of decision? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, you know, I think over the last few years, um, you know, a lot of the companies, especially with how much ransomware has made it into the mainstream media, uh, you know, organizations today know that this is a, a real concern. Uh, and it used to be, uh, if you got hit, now it's more of a, you know, what are you going to do when you get hit kind of mentality. Uh, but there are a lot of uh, protections and um, different things put in place by the US government, for example, uh, specifically with what we consider, we call it OFAC, which is the Office of Foreign Asset Control, which is controlled by Treasury. Uh, it lays out the groundwork for how we can make payments and if we can even make payments. One of the things that's provided along with, with the OFAC process is what's called the SDN list, the Specially Designated Nationals list. And this list will actually have uh, specific threat groups or uh, malware applications listed on it. And if, if we do identify those within a client's environment, there actually is no way to pay. Uh, so we do have to get, um, we, we have to get creative sometimes on how we can get a customer back up and running, especially if they don't have something like backups. Uh, if they did have backups and they were encrypted as well, um, you know, we, we may have to find other means, whether it's through uh, previous emails that were sent out where they can pull the data back down. Uh, if they print out, you know, a lot of their uh, invoices and stuff like that, you know, we might be able to pull, pull the data back. Um, but in, in certain cases, if we just can't make payment, uh, you know, like I said, we have to get creative. Um, and sometimes clients don't even want to make a payment. You know, they, they don't want to support, uh, you know, really a terrorist organization. Um, so, you know, there are, there are times that, uh, 
you know, we'll, we'll look at different things. If, if a client does have backups that we can restore and, and bring them back to an operating position, um, you know, we'll, we'll definitely take that as a, as a first option, see what their gap is going to be in their, uh, in the data that we can bring back. Um, you know, but it's, it, it's, it's always a process to figure out what we can do, you know, with, with what we have. Um, you know, the other concern that, that we see a lot of times is, uh, this, we use ransom, we call it ransomware as a service. Most people don't realize that these ransomware variants, they're actually set up like, like organizations. Uh, they have the administrators that develop the ransomware payloads. They have a team of uh, essentially support people that respond to the ransom note emails or the 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 dark web chat service that, that we utilize to, to negotiate with them. Uh, and then you have the threat groups that actually do the hacking and execute the payloads. Um, and not all ransomware variants do that, but you know that sometimes causes some difficulties in us identifying who's doing it because we see the ransomware payload, we identify who the, the variant is, but we don't always know who's doing the actual attack. Um, there are IOCs, which are indicators of compromise, change from one investigation to the next, and there are TTPs, which are techniques, tactics, techniques, and procedures, they also change. So a lot of times it's hard to, to really track down who's doing what here. And like I said, the more you learn about this, the more you realize it's incredibly complicated. And I think, you know, for the average layperson, they might hear, oh, okay, so this company got hacked. Um, there's a ransom being placed on the data. You know, most of these multinational corporations should be able to pay for that, right? But the fact that there are certain situations where, you know, it's impossible to pay because they're on one of these lists that the government has really kind of, to me, hammers home how important it is to have a robust kind of cybersecurity platform and, you know, technological kind of, you know, outlook on all of this, right? And I think we could turn back to Brian at this point, because I would like to talk about that a little bit more. Now that we kind of know what the threat vectors are and the threat these attacks can pose, what kind of steps would you suggest uh, a company take to boost their cybersecurity? Oh, great question. And it has, because of its complexity, it it, it can no longer be approached as a, uh, as a one-dimensional list of things to do. It's become um, dynamic. And so it begs uh, a governance approach, a compliance approach, or a framework that you're going to um, adopt as an organization. I mean, it, essentially, all, all of the industry frameworks out there or, or standards would um, highlight and, and prompt for the various dimensions that need to be managed here. But, um, you know, I mean, NIST is a very easy to recommend uh, cybersecurity framework, I think, in 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 that it's malleable and easily tailored to a number of different types and sized organizations. But there are others out there, and perhaps because of your uh, industry geography or even your client base, I, I'm thinking about you know perhaps you do uh, work for the Department of Defense. All of those things might inform. Uh, which framework you select and are are sort of aspiring to. Yeah, and I think that's a great point. It's not just like a single action. It's a continuing action, I think, cybersecurity at this point. Um, and I'm wondering, you know, just from your 
point of view, Brian, what types of internal auditing can a company complete to kind of test their cybersecurity? Now that they've realized there might be a threat, you know, what can they do to try to test themselves and kind of determine where their vulnerabilities are? Excellent question. I And I would say risk assessment is a foundational cornerstone of, of managing any domain of risk. And in this space, a couple of things come to mind and a couple different levels of assessments or audits or tests too that you you might undertake. So I think the, the first point is that you would have perhaps with the help of an, a trusted advisor or expert within your organization or supporting your organization that you would have selected a group of assessments or, or audits that you're undertaking and have a reoccurring process of doing them. Um, one, you know, there's a big difference say between an external vulnerability scan which has a, its use in, you know, you're going to provide a domain name, say, of almost instant click and print type of a, an assessment, uh, looking for, for gaps, I, open IP ports and other issues um, there, that something like that could be done several times a year. Something like that's also used by insurance carriers, as an example, to make decisions about your insurability and, and, and the terms that you might be seeking. An external vulnerability scan is very different than a full penetration test where you are, you know, essentially hiring a professional hacker to, um, to exercise modern breach uh, methods, try to compromise you and essentially give you a report about where you have vulnerabilities, giving you information that you can use to make improvements and shore things up. Um, again, two very different types of assessments or engagements, but also, but but very critical um, as just as an example. Yeah, and something that comes to mind too is that it doesn't really seem to me at least that, you know, you can have all these technological kind of protections, but if you don't marry the people aspect of your business to these cybersecurity aspects, you know, it's it's kind of a moot point. Is that a fair assum like assumption right there, Brian? It's an incredible point that you make because the human element is still the weakest link. I think something like 80% of, of issues come from someone who accidentally clicked on something. Um, and so, uh, you know, it's, it's the weakest link, but it's still the hardest to control. Um, and, and I'm talking about both frontline employees and also your IT and your security team, right? There are things that can be misconfigured. So tr training, what we're getting at here is training um, awareness is an essential aspect of a comprehensive approach to this space. Um, I think the standard today is quarterly training, but another interesting thing is we're, we're, many of us are getting very good at passing our quarterly training um, and our awareness uh, uh, campaigns. And sometimes we're still bad at applying that knowledge. Maybe more accurately, we're also, we're also managing this risk in an environment where the threat actors are, are rapidly evolving and putting up some pretty compelling uh, phishing attempts and, and, and other things like that. So another control or an advanced step that I see many clients taking is uh, committing to simulated phishing campaigns. So essentially testing your workforce, where do you have gaps um, and doing that in sort of a safe way. Uh, it gives you an understanding as say the risk manager within your organization, um, wh where do you have gaps in understanding? How might you tailor um, a next round of training to, to solve that gap? Um, so it is a, a, an uh, ever evolving and 
uh, I guess, challenge and has to be uh, something that's always on your mind. Yeah, and I think we've seen a lot of development there, you know, from the original kind of Nigerian prince scamming emails you would see about 10 years ago to now I see emails coming in, phishing attempts using my boss's name, you know, making it look very legit. You know, this threat vector, you know, is something as simple as phishing even is getting very complicated. So I think those are some really salient points. I think another thing we could talk about, Brian, too, is just, you know, handling cybersecurity when it comes to outside vendors. You know, we've talked a lot about what you can do within your own organization to kind of shore up your security. But when it comes to, you know, these partnerships, which are obviously more and more important and also more tech enabled as we move forward with the, you know, next couple of years, how do you kind of see managing that threat? Is that something that, you know, an organization has any control over? And what would you say about that dynamic? Oh, this is a trending issue for sure. I mean, look at, I would say SolarWinds uh, exemplifies this, this risk, this third-party solution provider risk. When, when a hacking campaign can, can breach one, say, software provider, and then uh, by extension impact you know, 33,000 customers, that's a pretty good payoff on their, on their effort. And that represents for us you know, managing the, the risk within the organization what do we do about that? I have a long list of solution providers. So what it's driving again in this space is the things we're talking about in terms of our own cyber hygiene are the same questions that we should be asking our potential service providers. Um, I think another interesting aspect to this is that many professionals and leaders um, who, who say operate outside of the IT or the security environment are now prompted to to deal with this and to, and to learn more about it, right? You might have a procurement professional or someone within your organization who leads the, um, you know, the acquisition of third-party providers, and they're now having to wear the hat of, well, what, what do I want to know about your cybersecurity before we enter into a contract? Um, so we're seeing, first and foremost, uh, an increase in the questions that are asked prior to entering into a contract. Perhaps that's uh, requesting to see the risk assessments or the penetration tests that that, that, that third party's provided. Perhaps you're seeking credentials like SOC 2 or um, things that assuage your concern as a potential client of theirs in terms of, of their cyber hygiene. I've also seen uh, organizations start to use contracts to help them in this space. Maybe they're including you know, clauses that indemnify them on this front, or also contractually even um, mandating the access to, to cybersecurity risk assessments, uh, things like that. And I'd like to bring DJ back in here too. You know, I want to see from your perspective when it comes to third-party vendors, are you seeing anything else on the, uh, on the ground here? Anything you could add to this part of the conversation? Yeah, absolutely, Chris. Yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely a concern when, you know, we get brought on to assist a, a client that's in the the MSP or IT provider space, uh, especially with cloud. You know, we, we like to have everything come easy. So, you know, gaining access, uh, one of the easiest methods is to use the credentials uh, you use in your own environment, uh, utilizing what's called SSO or single sign-on. Um, you know, so asking the right questions, especially if they offer something like that, is, you know, how do they protect that? You know, do they enforce multi-factor authentication? Um, you know, so protecting access is is probably one of the most important because that's your first line of defense. 
Um, but then also how is the data protected? Uh, you know, is if, if they're housing data for the customer, you know, do they have uh, a DLP solution in place, which is data loss prevention? Uh, a lot of times they'll, they'll identify some early indicators, whether data is being moved off of the infrastructure. Um, and, you know, there can be alerts that are, that are provided and identified to stop, you know, exposure to that extent, or at least minimize exposure. Um, if there is a, uh, a network intrusion on a third party system like that, uh, and another question that we typically recommend asking is, you know, what, how is the data protected at rest is, you know, if they're saving data into databases or into a, a file structure, you know, is that data encrypted at rest? Uh, you know, a lot of times if a threat actor can get to the back end, uh, they may not be able to get in through the application to, to decrypt the data, but at least they won't be able to exfiltrate the data in any usable form. So we spent a lot of time so far talking about, you know, the threats, uh, the different vectors that can be channeled if someone's trying to enter your system. But I think we should talk a little bit about what happens if this actually goes through. And I think we can bring Summer in at this point. And I think one of the things a lot of people are looking for right now after hearing all this stuff is how can I protect myself? And I know that cyber insurance is one of the ways that can kind of protect you after one of these events has happened. So I was hoping you can kind of tell us what the basic elements of comprehensive coverage for cybersecurity would be, Summer, in your view. Absolutely, Chris. Thanks so much for uh, that great question. There are a number of different cyber insurance coverages available to clients to protect uh, the threats um, that they may be faced with, especially, you know, in the food and beverage industry. The one thing to note is cyber policy language is not universal, so it's really critical to work with an insurance advocate that has strong knowledge in the specific space of cyber risk and as well as you know the the particular industry food and beverage and the policy language and technicalities can be the difference maker between a covered and uncovered loss so i can't stress that enough on a high level cyber insurance protects businesses against financial losses caused by the types of incidents that Brian and DJ mentioned system hacking large scale data breaches and theft business interruption things like ransomware, extortion payments, and, and much, much more. And the good news is a well-negotiated cyber policy can offer very robust protection as a backstop for a food and beverage company. It's really not meant to replace the strategy that a company has to protect itself, um, utilizing a lot of different controls, um, as mentioned by Brian and DJ previously. But um, it really is kind of the break glass or, or fall back to help the company um, protect its reputation and financially recover in the event that one of those strategies doesn't work. So taking a look at kind of the general overall definition of a cyber event, this can maybe help everybody wrap their brain around what typically triggers a cyber policy. And again, this can vary you know, from policy by policy from an insurance standpoint. But a cyber event is usually defined as an actual or suspected unauthorized system access, electronic attacker privacy breach, or a system downtime. So with that in mind, I'll get into a little bit about the anatomy of the cyber policy 
to try to simplify this a little bit, most policies can be divided into two areas, first party coverage and third party coverage. And there are different subsections to protect the company under each of those sections. And starting out with the first party coverage, this is really meant to protect the insured from financial losses arising from the cyber event. So their own financial losses. And just to highlight some of the things that these policies tend to cover on a first party basis, although it's not an all encompassing list and it's ever evolving, it offers protection for you know, investigating the incident. Sometimes that can cost money as well as you know, risk assessments for future cyber incidents, also something that can cost a lot of money. And the cost for an insured data to be repaired, restored, or recreated in the event that their computer system is damaged as a result of a cyber event, as well as you know, sometimes you know, if, if um, third-party customers were involved um, and credit monitoring is, is needed, um, sometimes the policy can respond to that as well. Um, and also, here's one of the most important ones, I think, um, and I know that Brian uh, mentioned at the beginning some of the costs that can be associated with this specifically, is um, paying for lost revenue due to business interruption and downtime. This is a huge one in the food industry just because of the supply chain issues, just like Brian mentioned. And this is what really um, drives the engine and keeps the business up and running when a loss occurs. It reimburses the company for you know, things like lost profits and increased cost of working, um, IT folks and other vendors and so forth working around the clock. Um, as a result of the interruption to business operations caused by a cyber event or a prolonged and unexpected um, system failure or, or downtime. And I really like to kind of piggyback on um, what DJ said, because one of the really interesting facts is a lot of companies think, and, and this is directly related to business interruption coverage um, under the cyber policy, a lot of companies think that if their data is in a cloud or if they use a third-party vendor, that they're protected, they don't need to worry about it, it's gonna be on that vendor, it's gonna be that vendor's responsibility, and this simply isn't the case. We see a lot of people that you know rely, a lot of companies rather, that, that rely on um, these vendors. But what happens when you know that third-party vendor suffers a loss and it triggers a loss of income for your food company, there may be contracts in place that you have with them, but ultimately, you know, you want to protect your company um, from that contingent or dependent loss of business income coverage. And cyber insurance is a really great way to do that because you can't necessarily control all of the um, different kinds of protection that those third-party vendors have in place. I mean, you can try to vet them out as best as you possibly can, but um, buying insurance is a great way to um, help um, protect the company. Another um, area that is really important and probably um, what I see most frequently is the cyber crime. This is absolutely ram rampant right now, as um, Brian and DJ mentioned, and usually happens in three ways, um, the ransomware attack or extortion, um, electronic compromises where you know the bad actors hack into the insured network and gain access, maybe say the accounting or banking platforms or um, social engineering where the attackers might imitate a senior executive or third party in order to obtain bank information or, or maybe execute a faulty wire transfer. 
And some of these different, you know, sub coverages under, you know, the first party umbrella of, of different um, items here under a cyber policy um, can be sublimited. So it's really important to check your policy uh, and make sure that um, various items are not capped at a lower limit. So you might think you're buying, you know, a million dollars in cyber coverage, but you might only get 250000 for social engineering. So really taking a look at the policy language and what the limits are um, is critically important. I'd say another really um, critical element to um, cyber insurance is the incident response. This can really make or break a company. Um, having um, a plan internally is fantastic, but also um, having uh, the access that an insurance carrier has to vendors like Arite and, and, and the right specialists or you know, forensic support or um, legal protection and, and executing that really quickly and really well can really make or break how quickly an organization is up and running again after a cyber attack. And I'll say this as well, um, you know, it's really important also to vet out who the insurance carriers approved forensics and legal partners are, because that can also make or break the results. And usually, you know, the majority of cyber claims stem from first party losses, but I think it's critically important to also mention the other major section of a cyber insurance policy, which is the third party coverage. And that protects insureds for liability actions taken by third parties against them arising out of a cyber event. So sometimes it might affect, you know, somebody, um, you know, downstream, a vendor or a client or somebody else in your supply chain. And your company may have an obligation to keep their customers' personally identifiable information confidential and might face potential liability if it's not properly secured. So this section of the policy helps um, you know, protect against attorney and court fees associated with legal proceedings, settlements and court judgments, regulatory fines for non-compliance. Say, you know, for example, um, your company transmits um, unexpectedly some harmful malware to one of your customers' systems and, um, you know, fails to prevent um, that from happening or fails to prevent another company's data or um, information from being breached. So as you can tell, there are a lot of subsections to cyber policies. And again, this isn't an all-encompassing list, but it's meant to kind of give you an idea. Um, it's really common for one claim to trigger multiple sections of the policy. And it's also really common for there to be a lot of variation between policies. So it's really critical to identify your company's largest exposures and not just you know, choose the cyber insurance that's the cheapest to check the box. It's worthwhile to spend some time here and really find out what you're wanting to protect and make sure that the policy would you know, respond to your greatest concerns. And thanks for sharing all that, Summer. I know that this is kind of a complicated topic and a lot that's going on there. I'm wondering, you know, one of the things I've noticed talking to DJ and Brian is just how much this you know, these threat vectors have evolved over the last couple of years. And I'm wondering, you know, has the current cyber insurance market kept up? How mature would you say it currently is? So both cyber risk and cyber coverage, you know, is always evolving and maturing. So it's really critical to stay on top of it. And I think that's kind of like the common theme and the common thread here, um, especially, you know, as there's 
been a lot of talk about like potential recession this year, you know, which could lead to jobs being eliminated, payroll shrinking, you know, if companies go through downsizing, you know, obviously cybersecurity is still a major concern and, you know, employee turnover requires, you know, continuous training and all of that. But um, I would say that, um, you know, the cyber insurance market overall um, has been forced to mature rather quickly over the last five to seven years. And this is as a result of the high value, uh, high volume of claims, you know, losses becoming more severe and unpredictable, the notion of, you know, catastrophic or accumulation risk due to the, you know, digital interconnectivity, you know, things like the cloud or, you know, large vendors, um, it's really caused underwriters to scrutinize the controls that um, insureds have in place. And it's kind of forced um, us into a hard market, meaning the coverage is expensive, it's hard to get, and also, therefore, it's, it's you know, more necessary than ever um, to have the right plan, but also the right protection if that plan ends up failing, because at this point, really, any company of any size can be a target. So to answer your question, I, I think that, you know, it's, it's definitely matured um, rather quickly. The good news is um, a company can learn a lot about their risk profile and cyber health just by going through the insurance quoting process. And I know that Brian talked about, you know, vulnerability scans and penetration tests to give you feedback. And when you go through um, the cyber quoting process, you can get um, just that because the insurance carriers now have become wise to, you know, very specific criteria that they want a company to have in place in order to even offer cyber insurance. And this criteria is based on prior losses and the lessons that were learned from them and the investigations that a company like Arite has made and the feedback that they've provided to the insurance companies. So it's really important to you know, work with a strong broker advocate that can educate the company on what those best practices are, what the carriers are looking for in order to get the best results, from both the claims and an insurance quoting standpoint, because the carriers um, are going to assess your risk profile, identify your vulnerabilities, and maybe even report back to you on them and grade you, and that can you know help make um, your um, protective measures stronger and and reduce the overall um, potential of, of falling victim to um, a cyber attack. A lot of companies think their IT team or you know, cloud-based systems and the money that they've spent on the cyber strategy will keep them protected. But because of the evolution of the coverage and the cyber market and the threats, um, even the best team with the best preventative technology can fall victim to a cyber attack. And from your perspective, Summer, what can you tell us about trending breach response and claims issues? I know we've talked a lot about the breaches and the attacks themselves, but when it comes to response, what are you seeing uh, from your perspective? So here are the items that come to my mind uh, that can lead to coverage issues and post-claim issues and out-of-pocket expenses to, um, you know, a cyber um, insured um, or, a, or a company that purchases cyber insurance. Um, the client, you know, might try to bear the burden initially. We see this happen a lot because people want to maintain their reputation and maintain their privacy. And so a lot of times, you know, the client tries to bear the burden 
of the claim on their own and whether the storm because they just simply don't want anyone to know. And even if they're buying the insurance, we see them do this and they say, you know, we have a great IT team. We don't need to file a claim. You know, this isn't a big deal. We've maybe detected some unusual activity on our network, but, you know, we don't think it's anything more than that. And we've implemented what we think we need to implement in order to resolve that. And ultimately, um, you know, in that situation, if it evolves into something more, um, you know, the client has now not provided timely notice of a claim to the carrier. Um, they may not have properly documented or, you know, provided proof of loss of business income that could be discovered down the road that they are totally unaware of initially. Um, they might have engaged, you know, non-carrier approved response vendors at that time and started to spend some money. Um, you know, they've now maybe not invoked um, attorney-client privilege early on, and um, maybe, you know, they haven't um, you know, even told their, their broker or insurance company about what's happening, and, and they receive a ransom note, and, you know, things start to get out of hand really, really quickly. And in hindsight, you know, in, in working with a breach coach and approved vendors and, you know, getting the carrier's consent to paying a, a ransom you know, um, payment early on would have um, really helped prevent claim issues and, and uncovered costs. So my best advice is, you know, just really engaging the broker and the carrier as early as possible to get the best results, even if you think your IT company um, or IT team internally or externally can handle um, what's been potentially detected. And then just kind of turning back and, and adding um, some just a reiteration and additional emphasis on the importance of um, an area that's trending. And, and that's in like the compliance and regulatory issues due to the OFAC checks um, that DJ was talking about. Something that a lot of um, companies don't realize is that due to you know, more government scrutiny and regulation around making a ransom payment, even when the ransom where you know, insurance is in place, a lot of times the client actually has to pay the ransom and then seek reimbursement from the insurance carrier. And a lot of that is not widely um, talked about or, or known. So even when you are purchasing insurance, sometimes you know the actual company could end up having to fund the money and, and seek reimbursement just due to the regulatory issues. So this is why it's so important to communicate with the insurance carrier, the broker, the breach coach, the attorney, as early on as possible in the event of a claim. And a lot of times, you know, these claims occur over a weekend or at a time when, you know, people aren't in the office and the IT team has to work around the clock to, um, you know, help get these things resolved um, and work with um, the insurance carriers, vendors to move on this quickly because a lot of times it's time sensitive. So I guess if there's one thing you take away from this discussion, I would say it's this. Um, overall, it's it's really critical to have strong cyber controls, have a tested response strategy, a strong business continuity plan, and internal cybersecurity committee, as well as you know, vetting out strong vendor partners that you would deploy in the event that something like this happens. But it's also really critical to have a well-curated cyber insurance policy in order to achieve that overall cyber resilience. And we know that risk management insurance is really complex, and we're here to advocate, educate, and support our clients in all of these areas. 
What a conversation. And it kind of feels like we're just scratching the surface here, really, when you think about it. I really want to thank all three of you for spending some time today on the Food Institute podcast and talk about this pressing issue. But I'm wondering if an audience member is looking to learn a little bit more, you know, where should they go? How can they get in touch with you? And maybe we could start off with DJ. Anything you would want to share about, uh, you know, perspective audience member that wants to learn a little bit more about what you're doing? Yeah, absolutely. You can always go to our website, which is ariteir.com, A-R-E-T-E-I-R.com. Uh, we do have some information there as, as well as uh, some white papers. Um, you know, but if, if you have a an incident response team or a managed security service provider that you've worked with in the past, I definitely recommend, you know, asking the questions, um, you know, find out what the the current trends are that are going on, uh, you know, if you can get a review of your environment. Uh, I know Brian uh, talked a lot about uh, some different quick and easy methods, uh, you know, to to do some just some quick checks, uh, some quick health checks on your environment. Um, you know, it's it's I know there's always budget concerns, but there there's always something better that we can do to protect ourselves. And how about from the hub side, Summer? Absolutely. So at hubinternational.com, we have a wide array of information and articles and details surrounding the topic of cyber insurance. But also, um, Chris, in the notes section, if you want to link them directly to me with my email address and phone number, I would be absolutely happy to provide a white paper document for various sizes of food and beverage companies on what the best practices are um, and what the insurance carriers are generally looking for if somebody is looking to um, purchase cyber insurance or just enhance their overall organizational resilience and risk management process surrounding cyber. And that's going to do it for us on this episode of the Food Institute podcast. Thanks again to Brian, DJ, and Summer for joining us and to Hub International for sponsoring this episode. Once again, take a look in the description of the episode for some links to some of the resources we talked about today. So until next time, this is Chris Campbell signing off.